Thank you for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson, produced by Surefire Local. Over 50,000 people have listened to Mark's podcast series specifically for home improvement businesses. You can subscribe to this podcast on any mobile phone using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome to Remodeling Mastery. Remodeling Mastery is a podcast series that's designed to help you take your business to the next level. What I try to do is I take different topics, topics that are really relevant and thought-provoking and really giving you a chance to reflect and think about the business, not just do the business. Additionally, I bring on industry thought leaders and experts to share some of their experiences, but also some of the different insights and embellishments that really can help you improve your business. Today, I want to talk about a topic up front that I think is probably pretty relevant for those listening to this particular podcast, and that is preparing for softening in the market. Now, we've experienced historic kind of highs with respect to the remodeling opportunities as it's grown and grown and grown since 2008 when we had our crash. We've had over 10 years of growth in the remodeling industry. So it's only sensible, like all cycles, that things do go up and down. And hopefully, moving to the future, we're not going to see a drop off the cliff like we did from 2007 to 2008. However, I think it's kind of naive on anyone's part to think that we're not going to necessarily see some softening. There are many different indicators that we look at at Harvard's remodeling futures that are important. Some of those include home appreciation, which again is a little bit softer in many of the markets in the country. We also watch interest rates, which on the one hand are really positive in terms of the low interest rates, but it also, I think, causes people to really consider thinking about moving necessarily than remodeling. We also watch the stock market, which is positive, but at the same time, a little bit wiggly out there and not necessarily a huge amount of confidence. We also Keep an eye on some of the political dynamic that's out there. When you look at all these things, including unemployment, I think that uh, it's safe to say that there is some softening that's maybe coming up around the horizon. So I'm going to give you, I think, some suggestions and ways to maybe think about how do I prepare for a softer market moving, at, moving forward. So I've really broken these down into seven particular tips and themes. And I want to walk you through those individually. But more importantly, I want you to kind of engage your team or sit down with a a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and jot down some of these ways that you want to prepare for the future, just like I'm giving you ways uh, on a very high level. So the first one is focusing on the right clients and projects. I think in many ways, many remodeling businesses are very reactionary in the sense they react to opportunities that come their way. They don't necessarily target the right clients in the right project. So the first thing you need to do is sit down and really think of your business, think of your clients and projects almost like a target at a shooting range. And in the center of this target is the bullseye, which in fact is where your right clients and right projects are. 
your right clients are the ones that allow you to make a profit. They allow you to create great client experiences. They allow you to really perform at the level that you need to. Your right projects are also not only within your competency, but also geographically correct and also the right scale for your processes and systems. So as you prepare for the future, number one, you need to know what the right clients, right projects are, but you need to try to put more energy and effort in creating those clients and projects, which I think will help, I think, you to certainly navigate, I think, a little bit stormy waters. Number two is increase your marketing efforts. As I look at all the different folks out there, either I'm working with, advising, boards, different kind of things, one of the things that I think is a common denominator between many companies, as they start to see softening, they start to see marketing as an expense, not an investment. And as a result of that, that contraction of the marketing efforts and marketing expense, whether it's real dollars or real time and energy, that's what happens. And as a result of that, I think it only acerbates or makes kind of the condition moving forward in terms of more difficult, not less. So I encourage increasing your marketing energy, your marketing spend, and really put a higher percentage of your time devoted to marketing moving forward if you want to prepare properly, I think, for potentially some softening. Number three is strengthening, strengthening your team. Now, oftentimes, when you have some softening, you have to make some decisions. But what you want to do is take some good, solid inventory of your team. You know, who, are the, who on your team really are out there that can do the job, have a high degree of competence, that will do the job, have a high degree of, of uh, attitude and, and gung-ho behavior? And then third is those that really fit the culture and the organization and the long-term vision that you have. So the more energy that you can devote in preparing and taking inventory of your team, and if you've got some really weak links in that formula, if you've got some problem children, if you've got some cancer to the culture, those are the folks before you actually hit the softening, you want to necessarily do the necessarily weeding, but also strengthening the teams maybe means to shore up and add a good additional team member, if not anything else as, a, as an insurance policy, but also to prepare yourself for the future. Number four is to diversify. Now, most remodelers, I think, they have way too many eggs in one basket. On the one hand, I'm saying the right projects and the right clients. The other hand, I'm saying you ought to think about diversifying. Diversifying is seeing the market in terms of high peaks and high valleys. For example, during the crash, the new construction side of the industry dropped 75%. However, the large-scale remodeling-type industry dropped 30 to 40%. So there's many sectors within that that actually either are counter-cyclical, i.e. could be insurance restoration, repairs, handyman maintenance, that kind of thing, or could be, in fact, nice complements to your existing business. Now, I'm not saying that you devote a tremendous amount of your energy, but I do think it's reasonable to say is you look to the future to have 10 to 15% of your actual blend or portfolio blend be focused on some diversification. So it really creates the right hedge in the balance as we do see some softening and average ticket sizes potentially go down. Number five is to actually develop kind of that bunker plan, develop that written plan and the important milestones. 
I think we tend to be in remodeling somewhat optimistic. Therefore, it's not unusual when we step into the quicksand that it gets up to our knees and we say, oh, it's not that big a deal. We'll, we'll, it'll change tomorrow. Then it's up to our waist. Then it's up to our chest. And then we're, it's too late. We can't get out. So as a result of that, I think if you have the discipline to develop a written plan, a plan for the next 12, 18 months, what you expect, but most important, some key milestones of, of, you know, aggressive, but realistic, very realistic milestones that have to be met. And if in fact, those milestones are not happening, you can make your adjustments accordingly. Number six is communication with confidence. Now, the worst thing that you can do, I think, as a leader in the company is the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And with your team, if you're feeling a little bit of anxiousness, imagine how they're feeling about it. Their fear is oftentimes twice as great as your fear. So it's critical that you start to communicate with confidence. And communicate with confidence means maybe a higher degree of transparency, maybe seeking out help of key members to be able to get them kind of fired up and and get the work ethic and where it needs to be. Leadership needs to be really clear as you're moving forward, not necessarily with a lot of spin in terms of what, how optimistic and everything should be. So again, communicate with confidence, not necessarily with a lot of spin. And number seven, and certainly that's not the least of all the different things to prepare, but I put on my list is, is watch your cash. You know, what you do not want to do is move into some softening and make all your decisions based on how much money is in your checking account that particular month. So I think watching your cash has many legs to it. Number one, you want to make sure that you're you're filling kind of that war chest as much as you can. You know, be a little bit conservative in terms of your cash. Probably get out. And if you do have lines of credit, go ahead and increase those lines of credit so that you can have that there so you can make good, solid business decisions, not necessarily, again, how much money that you have in terms of your checking account. So in summary, I think it's critical that you really go into, I think, this whole topic of of the future as, you know, it's not necessarily uh, all of a sudden the sky is falling, we're going to drop off the cliff. But I do think it's reasonable to say you know, for many years, we had a good, solid tailwind. And now it's, you know, kind of neutralized. And maybe next year, 2020, and maybe beyond, we have a light level of recession, maybe a little bit greater. And that's kind of a headwind to your business. I think it's safe to say that homeowners are not going to all of a sudden want to go out and do things themselves as a hedge to all this. However, it is going to be harder, not easier. And when things are harder, I think you have to really prepare yourself for that. And I think if you go back and listen to these seven tips that I just gave you and add your additional ones that you have and your team has, you're going to be more successful. So again, I want to thank our supporters of Remodeling Mastery, Professional Remodeler, as well as NARI, the National Association of Remodeling Industry, certainly my friends at Surefire. If you're interested in any of my books, just contact Surefire. They will give it to you as a gift in exchange for a short conversation with their team. And uh, stay tuned and we'll get into our thought leader interview here shortly. Take care. I want to thank everybody for listening to Remodeling Mastery. But just as much, I want to thank those that support this particular series. 
Now, first and foremost, I want to encourage you not just to listen, but to subscribe. And for those people that subscribe to this podcast or actually reach out to my producers, Surefire, a leading digital marketing organization, you'll actually receive a copy of one of my books that will help you take your business to the next level. This podcast series is actually supported by Professional Remodeler. Professional Remodeler is committed to help you understand and crack the code on your business. So I encourage you to try to spend the time reading the magazine and reach out to them and be a little bit more of a voice in the industry. I also encourage you to get involved, get engaged. The National Association of Modeling Industry, NERI, is a wonderful organization that I've been involved with with most of my career and actually had so many opportunities as a result of that. And lastly, certainly, reach out to my friends at Surefire Local that'll be able to help you with your business. Welcome back to Remodeling Mastery. I'm your host, Mark Richardson. And in this portion, it's probably the most interesting and certainly uh, fun for most people is when I actually interview, interview a thinker, interview a thought leader in not only the remodeling industry, but certainly in the industry in general. And we try to drill into subjects that are not only relevant, and if you're not paying attention to them, maybe you kind of move it up kind of your, your, your uh, radar in terms of importance. So with me today is Tony Matthews. Uh, he is an expert uh, in transitions, and he is going to be talking to us a little bit today, and we're going to be discussing uh, one of the more common transitions, I think, certainly, that is out there, or at least one that has some real structure to it, that many people are leaning in and thinking about is the whole concept and direction of an ESOP. So with all that being said, let me just tee up a couple more quick comments. You know, I oftentimes, when I'm doing a talk, I'll ask audiences, you know, how many of you out there would like to see some sort of exit or transition from your business? And it's rare that the majority of the hands don't go up. Then I go on to ask a follow-up, how many of you have that plan in place? And it is generally about 5%. So there's clearly a real disconnect between those that are yearning for something and those that have a plan in place. And hopefully, if not anything else, this discussion with Tony and Anthony today will get you starting to think about that. So. So welcome to uh, Remodeling Mastery, Anthony. Let's start with our first kind of kind of broader question, and that's the whole subject of transitions. Uh, what mm -hmm. are some of the different you know alternatives that an mm -hmm. owner or a business can have if they're thinking about that next step in transition? Well, uh, well, first, uh, thanks, Mark, for having me with you today. It's always a pleasure. Um, to work with you and, and the folks that you you uh, work with, um, I, you know the the question you've asked is one that could have been answered quite a bit differently for the last many years. But where where it lays today is um, we're we're right on the cusp of of a point at which the uh, the the number of businesses that are going to be in play basically are going to be up for for transition is growing as a percentage of the total number of available companies in such a way that um that really the the decision tools have have had to change 
um, you know, basically when you, you own a productive asset, one of the principal ways that they, they change ownership is through inheritance almost. You know, we have family businesses that have gone on through generations. But some of the things we've done as a society uh, have really educated a lot of our kids uh, out of our businesses. And so the, 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 you know, the family transition is one that while it was a very common way is becoming less so. Um, as people reach the, 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 the end of their career and they've got a company up and running, they might also be looking at some sort of a strategic transaction where some strategic buyer is looking for them. Um, these a are a fairly buyer might be another modeling company, or it might could be, be a could be a, a supplier. Yeah, another right, and it could. It, there's the strategic really is one that's defined by the buyer, uh, and so, sometimes it's hard to predict what it's going to be. But but those are typically um, uh, the, uh, the 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 largest return you can get for a business is from someone who has that sort of strategic connection to it. Um, you'll also see some of the businesses that are just, uh, you know, uh, 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 attractive to financial investors. We have a number of private equity and other uh, M&A types that um, that do investment. Um, but but for me, the the real fear, and it's something that I'm very concerned about as an advisor to businesses, is the number of businesses, especially small to mid-sized ones that I see uh, come in contact with where the intent is just to liquidate the company, that I'm ready to retire. There really isn't a buyer. I don't have family. What am I going to do? I'll sell off the assets and go home, collect my accounts receivable and call, call it a day. Um, that, that, that for me is very troubling because it means that we're not only losing a productive asset from our culture, but we're losing jobs and we're losing a tax base. And, you know, the, the, if, if, if you couple that that outcome to the the really high percentage of businesses that are about to change hands because they are are, are owned by baby boomers and and other elderly folk, um, it can be a pretty significant um, problem not only for the companies and the owners but also for society as a whole and, and our, our 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 neighborhoods and everything. So one of the things that we've been working a lot with that you kind of referenced when you introduced me. Was this notion of of letting companies continue, uh, but in the form of an employee-owned venture, so that that you you know can use one of that that the, the tool that you mentioned that ESOP or other kinds of, of vehicles to um, to to allow the companies to continue in a form that uh, that that does it one of the few mechanisms actually that that causes a transition of ownership but leaves all the value and everything in the in the neighborhood that it's created in. So now, the, Anthony, go ahead. ESOP as a as a you know an entity, it, it certainly got some uh, well-defined kind of parameters. There's some mm-hmm. obviously regulatory kind of elements to it. How did it right. give, give 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 us a little bit of history of kind of yeah, where the, ESOP the, came the, from? Yeah, the ESOP came into existence in the mid '70s. Um, and uh, and it was a reaction at that time to uh, you know growth in businesses all over the place and and uh, an acknowledgement that our economy had changed such that um, workers in general were having a much harder time creating wealth or at least saving uh, enough for their futures and so on and and uh, ESOP 
was invented. It's an employee stock ownership plan is what ESOP stands for. It was invented by a, um, a really interesting business advisor from the San Francisco Bay Area who used to quip that the only problem he could see with capitalism was that it didn't make enough capitalists. Um, but in any event, it came in in the mid-70s uh, riding uh, in with uh, ERISA, which is the Employees Retirement Income Security Act of 74, which was a major overhaul of um, of, of everything related to employee-employer relations. Um, and, and, and it became authorized by that um, uh, and what they call qualified uh, as a mechanism for companies to um, basically allow for uh, this ESOP to be the purchaser of, of company stock um, and to purchase up to 100% of it and hold it for the benefit of the participants, the employees of the company. Um, the ESOP itself is a tax-qualified retirement plan, very much the same as, um, as a 401k or profit-sharing plan might be where the company gets deductions for the amount that it funds and uh, benefits are held for employees until such time as they retire or become available for them. The ESOP, though, has these two characteristics which differentiate it from any other kind of retirement plan. Uh, first of those is that while most retirement plans are, are not allowed to invest too heavily in the company that sponsors them, ESOPs are required invest up to 100% of their assets in stock of the company that sets them up. And the second major difference for an ESOP from any other retirement plan is that it's allowed to borrow money, uh, to use the good faith and credit of the company as collateral and borrow money so that it can make larger purchases of stock than it might be able to make otherwise. Um, ESOPs have been around, as I said, for quite a long time. Um, they are not as well understood maybe as we would like to see them um, for a lot of reasons, um, mostly that most of the financial advisors in the country have very little, if any, experience with them and so are not really in a position to, to help uh, business owners find their way there. Um, what are some but, of the common misconceptions, Anthony, of ESOP? Um, sure. Uh, well, there's there's three broad categories, and then there's a lot of misconceptions that come, come under them. Um, the first one is um, has to do with uh, the, the amount of risk that employees employee investment in the company stock, and some folks see it as, as a, a risky investment when you put all your eggs in one basket and so on. Uh, they're kind of unfamiliar with the actual quote that that comes from. Uh, the, 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 uh, the idea of having all your eggs in one basket is only risky if um, if you if you're not able to watch and control and manage that. In fact, almost all wealth is created by really concentrated investments. So what this really does is give employees an opportunity to build something real, real wealth rather than just um, just have have a, a, a savings arrangement. I, I shared office space with a Nobel Prize-winning uh, economist um, for a few years while I was at UC San Diego and. We used to get into brisk discussions about about it, and ultimately land on the reality, which is you 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 really can't save your way to wealth um, these days. Um, you really have to have to become wealthy in the way that everybody else does, which is own assets that grow in value. So what ESOPs do instead of creating a higher risk is they really create an opportunity for employees 
to uh, participate in the, in the growth of it. And since they're being really funded with the future earnings of the company, there's not, not a financial risk. From, nobody gets worse off than they were to start with with an ESOP, but they do overall get dramatically better off. Um, the second area that people are concerned with, with it is if, well, if I sell to my employees or if I sell part of the company to the employees, then I'm going to have to change everything and, and get permission to give salary increases and so on. Um, and, and that's really not true, uh, even though you hear it a lot. Um, the, uh, the structure that the ESOP uses is, is a trust arrangement. So the, one of the things the company does is appoint a, a, a trustee to uh, oversee the, this employee trust. Um, and so all of the, the, the control features of ownership uh, go to this trustee, which is appointed by the board of directors of the company. So as a practical matter, there really isn't anything in the management or the oversight of the company that changes with the adoption of an ESOP. What does change, though, is the value that's being created winds up vesting in employees' accounts. Um, so between the, the risk of investment and the control factor, uh, and then the third thing that I hear a lot is, oh, they're, you know, especially from, uh, from CPAs who are not familiar particularly with them, but oh, it's just way too expensive. Uh, you have to get valuations done and so on. And it is true that, that an ESOP is going to be a little more expensive to manage than a 401k plan or a profit sharing plan where we don't have employer stock. There are obligations to create valuations every year so you know how much the company stock is worth and so on. Um, but if you compare it not to, if you compare it to a, a retirement plan, it's going to be a little more money. Um, <clears throat> but if you compare it to the cost of selling your business, uh, it's one of the most economical ways to do it because ultimately the company is in control of the whole process. Um, so it's a good way to give a path to wealth for employees. And we have some, some really comprehensive research. If your listeners are interested, the National Center for Employee Ownership, NCEO, has got a whole library full of it. But um, we know that, that employee-owned companies have employees who who retire with between two and a half and four times the retirement income they'd be expected to have otherwise, uh, that the net worth of households that have ESOPs involved in them on some level is dramatically higher, like almost twice what you'd expect them to be otherwise, and so on. There's lots of good indications that this is a, a, a good outcome. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, I... People that are concerned about it, I'd suggest more that they, you know, get in touch with an ESOP company and we'll give them some ways that they can do that. Now, how, um, let's just talk a little bit about the business and the operational side sure. and even uh-huh. the cultural side of, you know, the right kind of company to consider ESOP. Are there companies out there that, quite frankly, should say, nah, this isn't really for you versus ones that you know, this might be the, you know, really the secret sauce to what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, we, we have done ESOP work in, in a whole wide variety of businesses. You know, uh, there are some, some industries that have restrictions on who can own stock or how the stock has to be held. Um, physical therapy companies, for example, or other things like that where we have some issues with licensing and so forth. But for the most part, it's more a function of how the company internally is, 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 is operating. Um, 
there there's a certain kind of minimum size a company where it it's not you know um if you if you have at least like 10 or 15 employees maybe and a few million a couple million of revenue and so on and so on you're probably at the low threshold of what um where where it can be really useful um i think from from my perspective i've always looked at business succession planning as you know this is one of the tools um uh, and it's a tactic like other tactics and it's going to apply to a certain number of people that are in in that state um and others that won't and more it has to do with you know are you a a, a valuable successful business is there enough equity in the business that's been constructed that when you go through the process of you know borrowing to buy it out and do all the things that need to be done it's going to be worth it for the for the uh employer for the owner of the business to go that route um and there are services around to help help analyze that um it 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 um you know of all of the op- options i mentioned earlier where you know companies either going to do a um a, a transaction with a a financial buyer or a strategic buyer or family or whatever um if you throw the employees into the mix as one of the considerations it very often turns out to be a benefit most beneficial to all the parties concerned um again i i i live in in a continual concern over how many of these smaller companies will wind up just being liquidated and i think that would be a huge loss not only for the owners of the businesses who don't get real value for their business um but for the communities that they live in and you know all the other folks that are involved it's when we lose you know people don't really think of it this way but if you look at the the percentage of the productive capability of our country that's represented by closely held companies not the big public companies um it's a it's a major significant percentage of the company uh, i've seen estimates that the productive capabilities of our com- company of our country uh in the public market are you know less than 10% uh while the balance of all that productive capability is in closely held companies for the most part um so it's something that's worth saving something worth passing along and if in the context you can also create a wealth opportunity for the employees as well as a retirement fund for the for the previous owners uh it's just it's the only outcome that doesn't have a significant loser attached to it so Anthony, let's talk a little bit about a few tips and advice if people want to consider, you know, mm-hmm. at least learning more about this. I mean, it sounds like a process that ideally you want to start it many, many years before you kind of it actually gives birth. How long yeah. do you have to how long does it take to kind of get a program in place and well, then it's one of the yeah. invested one of the big benefits of of this approach is that you're in control of that the company can control it we have done uh esop transactions where um for some personal reason a, a death in the family or something there was a, a a significant need to do a really rapid um refinance or you know go out and we've been able to use uh bank lenders and others to to construct them so that it's very quick uh on the other side of the coin probably a little more common uh people kind of dip their toe into it and uh uh and will start with a small percentage of the company being 
contributed or sold to uh you know setting up the ESOP and letting it go from there um in fact you know one of the ones you and I uh have had some common dealings with it took almost 20 years to do a whole transaction to buy the whole company but but it it did it served a purpose along the way it was a, a retirement payment it helped employees identify with the culture and the success of the business cuz they had a real stake in it um and and you know turned out well for everybody uh, so it's really it's one of the very few ways that you can create a business succession plan where the 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 owner the founder really remains in control of how it occurs until it's completed and then once it's completed um uh, it 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 gets its own it gets its own operating uh models going now are are many of these companies that are out there that are considered esop a hundred percent employee owned or is it more common that it's a portion yeah it's i think it's still it's still more common that it's a portion although it's growing um there there are a couple of significant tax benefits to operating as an esop company um one of them is that all the contributions you make to the esop whether it's buying stock or not become fully tax deductible so from the company's point of view it's a lot less expensive to fund an esop transaction um uh, one of the other areas that um that 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 comes into play also is that that this esop can be um can be built in in you know whatever specifics are 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 requested so if the company has an urgent need to create some liquidity that then can be designed to do that um as we go forward um the 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 owner benefits of this thing fall into these several categories you've got tax deductibility um you also have if you can get to the point where like our our common friend uh you have 100% of the company owned by an employee by this employee plan uh you can also get um uh make an election to be taxed as an S corporation which in this case actually creates a sort of non-taxability for the company as a whole so there's some pretty significant benefits to it um as an operating entity at the other end and the value to the owners is basically that the ones that are selling to it will get um full fair market value for their stock and they'll have control over how rapidly it occurs and and uh so and if so our, if our listeners Anthony want to kind of do a little bit more research kind of learn mm-hmm. a little bit more good yeah. bad and the ugly of esop programs out there what what kind of advice do you have in terms of that kind of that learning curve or that process to just learn more about it yeah well, I think that there, we're, we're lucky in that we have um, we have a couple of, of of large nonprofit services that are in the business of helping to demonstrate the the value of these things. The first one is the National Center for Employee Ownership, which you can find by just going on the internet to nceo.org, um, and um, and and that's a good sort of totally non-biased resource of, of of research and information about how employee ownership works in all of its forms. Um, you also can can and should talk to your own financial advisors. Uh, chances are pretty good that um, that most of your financial advisors won't know a lot about ESOPs, although it's a growing trend that they do. Uh, and and you know understand that the ESOP is just a 
a tactic, so it's got to fit with whatever your other planning is as well. So getting those folks involved. Uh, and then there's a couple of programs um, that have been activated in the last few years. Um, there's uh, a, an institute at, in, at the University of California in San Diego called the Beister Institute that uh, that has a lot of information on it. There's the ESOP Association in uh, Washington. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I'd be, I, I don't know how, how easy this would be, but uh, the, the only thing to keep in mind is when you're trying to find good advice on this particular approach, um, it's really an area where you need to be careful who you work with because uh, it, it's, it is an area that's complicated. It involves the equity of your business. It involves your personal wealth and finance and so on. So you owe it to yourself to find a, uh, an advisor that's, that's a legitimate expert in this because ultimately the truth is you're either a legitimate expert in how this works and all the implications of it or you're kind of dangerous. So I would give people the advice that they start with the NCEO. That's one absolutely uh, independent arbiter out there. And, and, you know, find your way to, to advisors that can, that can help you. I'd be happy personally to talk to anybody would be interested from what you're hearing. And, um, Excellent. You can give out my contact information. Yeah, we will be contact able to information. extend so. uh, Anthony's contact information, certainly reach back to uh, Remodeling Mastery, and we'll be able to connect the dots there. Listen, Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. And again, uh, whether it is this path or one of the many others, always better to be thinking you know, five, 10, maybe even 15 years out and what that path might be because, you know, as Anthony yeah. said, it's not unusual for you get down to a relatively short runway and all of a sudden you're kind of stuck and your only real assets are, you know, just your receivables. And I think you have an yeah. opportunity to keep that going. So thank you for uh, joining me today, Anthony, and uh, uh, we'll speak to everyone soon. Okay, very welcome. Thank you. If you liked what you've heard, take a moment to subscribe to Remodeling Mastery on your phone using your favorite podcast app. It's available on all the major apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Go ahead and post in the comments what you learned and any questions you have for Mark, and he may answer them on an upcoming episode. Thank you again for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson.